0: Greetings and welcome to episode fifty-two of Beyond Wasiya. I'm your host Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is something of a novelty. Uh, today we are going to be able to see uh, significant change over time in Japanese colonial policy um, towards Taiwan and Korea. Our topic officially is the Kominka movement in Taiwan and Korea. Uh, it is the hallmark policy platform uh, of the Japanese empire um, in the late imperial governance era of the 50 years of empire. Now, why is this a novelty? Um, it's a novelty because in Korea and Taiwan, we actually have this wonderful case study in which we can see a significant change over time, uh, both before and during World War II, when Japan is actually engaged in hostilities uh, throughout Asia. Um, and we see this change over time take place or be implemented among a fairly substantial, dense, well-defined population, the Korean peninsula, the, uh, uh, the island of Taiwan, um, that is not on the front line, the immediate front line of looming war. Okay, you can, we can compare this with other regions of the Japanese Empire to see how t- Taiwan and Korea are a little bit unique in this regard. If you think about South, uh, Japan and Southeast Asia, that's relatively late. Okay? I mean, it really, it's, it's uh, uh, after Pearl Harbor uh, that they're going to invade or have influence in Southeast Asia, um, and it's going to be wartime the entire time. So, that's not really normal <laughs> uh, uh, circumstances, if anything can be regarded as normal. Micronesia, okay, they have that for uh, roughly 30 years, but it's Micronesia, it's a lot of really tiny islands spread out over a vast ocean, Uh, not a whole uh, lot of people live there, Um, so it's not, again, it's not a great case study to sort of explore change over time um, among a substantial population. Anything on mainland China, whether we're talking about the occupied zones during the war. I mean, that's eight years, seven years of intense wartime uh, 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 uh. Situation, sort of like Southeast Asia. That's not going to be normal by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be mainly exploitation for the purposes of war. Um, And uh, maybe in the Northeast, you have Kwantung, you know, Manchuria, the South Manchurian Railway. Um, You know, yeah, we've talked about that and we have talked about change over time there. I'd say that's probably the only other area that's comparable to Korea and Taiwan and being able to talk about significant changes in Japanese policy over time. However, even that, I would sort of quarantine that into a separate topic because that was always had you know heavy military influence from the very beginning and it was Japanese troops who were often the trailblazers uh, uh, who, you know, sort of made the status quo change into a new situation that Tokyo then t- sort of had to catch up with. Um, and uh, so, again, you know, that, that, that was also sort of always on the potential looming front lines of war with China. Um, in Taiwan and Korea, though, we've got colonies that you've got for, you know, 30, 40, or in the case of Taiwan, 50 years Okay, Um, and you go through several stages, several stages of uh, how you're going to interact with the local population. And oftentimes, I mean, there's always debates going on. Uh, There's always debates from beginning to end in which, you know, certain loud voices, uh, both, you know, Koreans, Taiwanese and Japanese are all advocating for one type of policy or another. Generally speaking, what you get in the beginning, however, is the idea that, you know, uh, these are new, these people are very different. It'll be uh, uh, desirable one day if they can become fully Japanese, but boy, that's going to take a long time to do that. Even if we believe our, even if our ethnic ideologies uh, lead us to believe that these people really are Japanese, essentially, you remember that multidirectional migration and uh, the Mongrel Japanese race as a good thing. Um, you you could still make the argument that yeah, they are they were once Japanese, or we should all be part of the same family. Blah blah blah. Uh, nevertheless, they've. Stagnated. They have uh, uh, deluded themselves by intermixing with inferior peoples for so long now. Koreans have been attached to the mainland and the barbarians and the backward Chinese who have stagnated. So, you know, uh, still enough has changed. Or even if theoretically our endpoint is that you're all going to be Japanese and you guys are the first people who are slated to become Japanese, that can still be in your mind really, really far off into the future to the point where it's totally abstract and you don't even expect that to happen in your lifetime. All right, um, And in the earliest days, oftentimes the, the initial victor of these debates was someone who said, no, let's go slowly, the Taiwanese are different, the Koreans are you know, different enough or degraded enough that it'll take a little bit of time before we can get into our assimilationist policies. Although, when it's feasible, Korea and Taiwan will be assimilated first. All right. Uh, this is what we're going to see. The Kominka movement, uh, we, our time frame is about 1937 to 1945 with the outbreak of war in China. All right, this is Japan's new approach to its earliest, most cherished colonies. Uh, um, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to transform them during the wartime? Now you finally have a new catalyst, a new variable in the debate, which is going to push people to say, okay, no longer it's going to be theoretical. Our empire is significantly larger now. Now we have Southeast Asia, or we at least, you know, if you're talking about 37, we have the desire to, uh, you know, take over Southeast Asia. Uh, our empire is significantly larger. We have Manchu Kona now. We have inner and outer realms. Um, We've had these lands for a really long time. Situation has fundamentally changed with the outbreak of war. It is time to take our earliest colonies to the next step. All right, they're going to get this treatment first. Uh, What is Kominka? K-O-M-I-N-K-A. This is our word, Kominka. Um, it means literally to transform into imperial subjects. The kanji for this, the Chinese characters, perhaps if you're more familiar with Chinese pronunciation of the exact same characters that the Japanese are pronouncing kominka, the Chinese pronunciation of the same characters is huang min uh, to transform into imperial subjects people's imperial subjects. the idea is that this isn't going to be a, a true assimilationist movement. Remember, assimilation is, is a dirty word today. It's cultural genocide, it's cultural appropriation, not a dirty word for people who actually were implementing it in the old days. They say this is a good thing. Well, I guess that still stands today. Anyone who actually is implementing uh, cultural assimilation of other people, uh, they usually think that's a good thing. We are the superior people, we have a superior culture, more advanced, and we're doing you a favor. Uh, by letting you in, uh, you know, forcing you into our culture, whether you like it or not, kicking or screaming, we're gonna we're going to enlighten you, damn it. Um, anyways, so yeah, this is an assimilation movement to make your earliest colonial subjects true Japanese, both in spirit and in action. And the rationale here, the overall rationale is that the Japanese home islands, now that we are in this new situation, the stakes are much higher. We have interest all over Asia. The great you know, uh, Anglo powers are also being hostile to us now. The Japanese home islands cannot shoulder the increased burdens of the world situation right now, of the empire, of the war, and we need more help from all our colonial resources and all our colonial manpower. No more sitting on the sidelines uh, uh, benefiting from the fruits of being a part of this wonderful Japanese empire empire Uh, you know now it's not just going to be we're taking grain from you or taking sugar or you know economically benefiting you need to support more you need to contribute even more than you have Um, and so you know we are not so sure that we trust you entirely if you aren't fully Japanese yet so it's time to you know ramp up the assimilation to make sure that you're going to be fully trustworthy you are completely Japanese now. Right, we're going to accelerate your evolution back to your original uh, 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 race, your original family, which is us, because we came from everywhere to begin with. Okay, Japanese in the home islands are being mobilized during this period far more than before, and you trust them, you trust them more. Okay, so you're mobilizing Japanese from the home islands in greater numbers now during this eight-year period for important frontline jobs as cannon fodder in China. Uh, You know, so who's going to replace them? Now we need to draw upon our closest colonial subjects for substantive backline and eventually frontline work. All right, and you know, uh, as part of this, usually the first... A uh, uh, um, uh, degree of integration will be uh, sort of civilian conscript labor, uh, just, you know, working in factories, replacing the Japanese men that had to go to the front lines, um, and eventually when, you know, the, the wartime situation continues, you're, you're actually going to be given a gun. You're going to be given a gun, and sometimes you'll be put on the front line to fight. Um, but you are not getting a gun until we, we are certain that you are as Japanese as you can be. Okay? So, to serve, work alongside real Japanese and reap the benefits of being real Japanese you must become Japanese yourself. So, the Komenka movement in practice is basically whatever is deemed to be Japanese will be encouraged or imposed um, and anything else that is not deemed to be Japanese will be discouraged or expunged. Okay, Um, so in general, what you're going to see is that, you know, Japanese dress, Japanese architecture, Japanese gods, Japanese politics, you know, Japanese language, all this stuff is going to be encouraged, all right? Uh, Now, even though the encouragement or the imposition is wide-ranging, there are actually four major components that we're going to be talking about in this episode. We're going to focus on the case study of religion, language, surnames, and military. okay. And as you should expect by now, if you remember some previous episodes in which we talked about compared Taiwan and Korea, uh, you should probably already be able to guess that the implementation of the Komenka movement in Korea and Taiwan uh, is going to be harsher and more punitive based on the Korean peninsula, and it will be lighter and more incentive based in Taiwan. All right. Uh, We already know why that is the case. Uh, You know, it's sort of this uh, self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, We encounter less resistance to begin with. uh, So we uh, uh, feel, we trust that you will... uh, um, integrate into Japanese ideals a little bit more. You're more willing to work with us, so then we'll treat you better. Then you're treated better, and you interact in a more positive way with the Japanese, Um, and this sort of creates this positive self-perpetuating cycle in Taiwan. Um, And in Korea, it's the opposite. Uh, You're met with far more resistance in the beginning. Uh, That makes you more suspicious if you're the one in charge. Uh, You're not willing to share as much power with the Koreans or give them as many fruits of their integration with Japan that in turn creates more bitterness which creates more resistance and you have a vicious self-perpetuating cycle in Korea that results in a lot of punitive measures and impositions from on high that are deeply resented whereas in Taiwan I'm not saying it's all rosy in Taiwan and they welcome everything with open arms uh, but in general uh, compared to Korea it's going to be much more uh, uh, you know, carrot based uh, here is the carrot uh, we'll give you a treat uh, if you come on board with us uh, because we know you're already more likely to do this, and you just need a little bit of a push. Just a little bit of an incentive push. Let's, talk, let's start with religion. Uh, what does it mean when we say that as part of the Komenka movement, you're going to try to assimilate your uh, Koreans and Taiwanese into Japanese religion? Well, that means Shinto. Okay, that means Shinto. Uh, generally speaking, prior to this era, 37 to 45, um, you know, Shinto, we know, has become the official state-sponsored religion of the Japanese home islands now this was uh, it was artificially elevated in the second half of the 19th century after the meiji restoration there was the belief that we need a native religion uh, to sort of uh, uh, provide substance to the identity of the new Japanese people. Um, and so they said, you know, anything that came from abroad should be marginalized. Uh, let's find out what's uniquely Japanese and expunge the foreign element. Well, Buddhism was the foreign element that came from China, which in turn came from India. It's foreign twice, twice removed. Um, and so there was this, this desire, this uh, persecution of any Buddhist, anything that could be identified as a Buddhist element of Japanese society um, would be discouraged, would be suppressed, would be torn down, would be repurposed to Shinto. Uh, What is Shinto? It's the whatever native religion existed before Buddhism arrived um, in the second half of the first millennium A.D., This is very subjective uh, because religions are all uh, uh, syncretic, meaning that they all merge together. You never have. There's no pure form of Christianity anywhere in the world. There's no pure form of Islam anywhere in the world. There's no pure form of Buddhism or Shintoism. Uh, They mix together in ways to the point where you can't even tell what was once indigenous and what came from abroad. Uh, Oftentimes, they've mixed together. Buddhism has appropriated local gods and sort of Buddhified them uh, or the local uh, uh, institutions The local gods have taken concepts from Buddhism um, and tailored them to their own purposes. And then oftentimes Buddhist uh, monks and Shinto priests were in the exact same temple. Um, And if you were to say, which one's the Buddhist, which one's the Shinto? You might might get a confused answer. Uh, We both incorporate elements of each other. This is just what our religious practice in this area is. Okay, anyways, however artificial it might be, this is official ideology. Okay, Um, and previously, there wasn't a whole lot of missionary efforts. Uh, Remember, I talked about when we were in occupied China several episodes ago, we were talking uh, about actually before occupied China, just sort of early Japanese influence and population there. Uh, The one thing that the Japanese really didn't do in mainland China that the other Western powers did is religious missionary efforts. You really didn't get Shinto missionaries um, in mainland China in the same way that you got Catholic and Protestant missionaries from uh, the Western empires. Um, and you didn't really get that all that much in Taiwan or Korea. Shinto shrines and temples uh, would be erected. They would be built in Korea and Taiwan. Um, and if the locals wanted to do it, great. That's great. All right. There's probably an incentive to to practice Shintoism. Um, but there wouldn't be an overt state-led effort to say you need to practice Shintoism um, and you know this is very important to becoming a, to be treated well in the Japanese Empire. That is what's going to change in 1937 to 1945 is overt Shinto missionary efforts in Taiwan and Korea. Uh, you should, you need. To now practice Shintoism, uh, make a public performance of going to Shinto shrines, doing the rituals, um, and claiming that this is your religion. And if you don't do it, you will be suspected of being disloyal to Japan. And that's not going to go go well for you in a wartime environment. In Taiwan, more than half of all the Shinto shrines that will be built throughout the 50-year empire will be built in this period after 1937. All right, so most of the Shinto shrines that have been built previously, both in Korea and Taiwan, were for the use of the Japanese expatriate community. There are Shinto temples, they're how we express our identity and create our community's solidarity. Um, uh, Now, you're building, you know, in just five years, Taiwan has built double the number of Shinto shrines, and these ones are expressly used to encourage the Taiwanese to visit them. In 1949, 70% of all Taiwanese households will be given uh, paper amulets, little ritual objects uh, from a Shinto shrine uh, in Japan. Brought from Shinto shrines in Japan, they'll go out and they'll visit these uh, Taiwanese families over the entire island. 70% of the families will be given some little ritual object from a Shinto shrine in Japan and encouraged at the same time, take this to the the, the local Shinto shrine that's been erected in Taiwan. Um, and that'll be a way of demonstrating that you are evolving to a higher plane of religious worship. Uh, you are identifying more with uh, Japanese culture, with Japanese people. This is what we do and you should do it as well. Now, this isn't too harsh of a pill to swallow for most Taiwanese. Taiwanese religion is already sort of this hodgepodge. It already, uh, it already is, you know, widely syncretic. Uh, it includes many Chinese gods, many local gods. It's already polytheistic. Shinto. Um, doesn't necessarily require that you uh, renounce all other gods. Um, And so, you know, it seems as though You know, this wasn't a uh, horrible imposition for most Taiwanese. Uh, It wasn't too hard to make a sort of a show, whether sincerely or not, it's hard for us to recover, uh, but to make a show of going to a Japanese Shinto shrine. Uh, But certainly the encouragement, the positive encouragement of building more uh, Shinto buildings and going out of their way to encourage Taiwanese to visit these and worship at these was much stronger in the last eight years of the empire in Korea. Again, as you expect, um, there's going to be more resistance to this. All right, You already have a, a, a much larger population, a much closer group identity, community identity. Um, you also have greater inroads of foreign religions, such as Christianity. Christianity is huge in South Korea today. Some estimates say perhaps a third of the entire population of South Korea um, is uh, 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 subscribes to the Christian faith. It was likely much less than that uh, back in during the Japanese Empire, Uh, Nevertheless, it still had a a strong presence before Korea became uh, Japanese. uh, uh, Western missionary efforts were very strong in Korea in the last couple decades of the 19th century. And remember, Japan doesn't really have full control of Korea until 1910. Those last 15 years are very precious uh, for foreign missionaries to make inroads. Um, And so, you do have a uh, substantial, it's still small, but it's a substantial and very loud and visible uh, religious minority. In Korea during this uh, uh, time period um, and they're suspected of having foreign ties um, so you have that um, you also just sort of have this sense that you know we have our own identity and our own uh, religion here different than Taiwan um, and they the imposition of uh, Japanese Shinto shrines is bitterly resisted there will be decrees forcing Koreans to go to Shinto shrines. Not encouraged, You will be treated better. This we would really love to see you doing this. Uh, but decrees. You need to visit Shinto shrines. Uh, you know every X number of days. This is what you have to do. Um, and your whole family has to see you and know that you are renouncing uh, whatever sort of religious beliefs that you might have, um, especially if you are in any way suspected of being associated with Christianity um, in Korea. Christianity would be mercilessly persecuted during this era as well. Christian churches, schools, organizations would be shut down. There would be thousands of arrests. The leaders of Christian churches, the Korean leaders would be forced to take uh, 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 certain oaths um, or make public pro- proclamations renouncing uh, their previous uh, associations with foreign, foreign missionaries. One of them, uh, let, let me uh, read this quote from a Korean leader of a Christian church that was forcibly disbanded at this time. He he was forced to announce, quote, this church was established by American missionaries and has existed for more than 40 years. As a result, we unknowingly were influenced by the thought of our enemies, America and England alike, and we worshipped their Western customs and habits so that our Oriental indigenous good customs were gradually destroyed. All right, obviously he's being forced to make a statement like this, but you can see Japanese anxieties come out in this statement. Uh, The Americans have been here for more than 40 years. Uh, Foreign uh, religious influence is quite strong among the Koreans. Uh, Clearly, this is a place where foreign religions can take root very easily and thrive. Um, And we have to look out for this. Um, Now, also, this is a Western religion. Uh, They're not paying attention to what they refer to as, quote, Oriental indigenous good customs. Just throw throw all the positive uh, adjectives in there. Oriental, indigenous, good. Um, What are oriental, indigenous, good customs? Whatever the Japanese do, (laughs) right? Whatever the Japanese worship, Shintoism, that is what's going to be subjectively defined as oriental, indigenous, good customs. Okay. Um, overall, we could say that Shinto religious reform did not lay down particularly strong roots anywhere. Uh, we, you know, we also need more research on this. Uh, I, I sort of sometimes I think I give the impression that uh, the stuff that we talk about is based on reams and reams of research. You know, bookshelves groaning under the weight of so many tomes on this stuff. No, this is not like European history, American history. Um, for a lot of these things that we talk about, there might be one. Two at most three in-depth archival-based books. Sometimes there's not even a single book on some of these subjects. We have someone who wrote an article. Um, You know, I mean, this field of scholarship simply is not nearly as developed as it is in many parts of uh, uh, other parts of the world. Um, And so sometimes we just have to admit, and there's no shame in admitting, we don't really know uh, you know all the details on the ground we oftentimes have a pretty good idea of what the Japanese wanted to do what they thought they were doing what they tried to do uh, but it's tough to know uh, to any with, with any certainty or vividness that um, how it was received and what the extent of the success was. And in my class, I can supplement this sort of stuff with uh, primary source readings, eyewitness accounts, memoirs and whatnot uh, that are anecdotal. They aren't statistical. They're, um, you know, they're not sort of scientific analysis and whatnot. They're anecdotal. And as, you know, the saying goes, you can prove anything with an anecdote. Uh, But nevertheless, they will illustrate much more individual experiences of what it was like to be a Korean. Um, and be forced to go to a Shinto shrine and then come home and face your parents who would call you a traitor or say, you know, don't walk through the front door. You're not one of us anymore. Um, and even though that doesn't really tell you what uh, the general trends are across Korea, it'll give you a sense of, you know, this was bitterly resisted and you forced people to go, uh, uh, come into conflict with their friends and family um, to do this. Uh, generally speaking, though, we, we, we can say it doesn't seem like this was terribly Successful Taiwan probably largely indifferent or perhaps lukewarm integration. Uh, Koreans openly hostile, uh, especially when you start seeing persecution of Christian churches as well. Even if you're not a Korean Christian, if you see that you know institutions are being forcibly shut down, leaders are being arrested, um, this doesn't inspire faith among people who are not Christians. Uh, but nevertheless, they're saying you know we can see what their methods are. If you don't get on board, um, they're going to use coercive punitive measures. Um, And so, you know, you're already preparing to resist whatever other things might be forced upon you. You can also see what happens after 1945. Sometimes this is a good uh, litmus test of how uh, these initiatives were received, even if you don't always have the full picture during the time of their implementations. Uh, Shinto shrines in Korea were immediately burned to the ground after the Japanese surrendered in 1945, and they could be assured of no repercussions whatsoever. That'll give you some idea of what many Koreans, even those who weren't Christians, thought of the uh, forcible uh, uh, attendance at Shinto shrines. Um, And the ones in Taiwan, it seems that most of them were not burned down, But they were immediately repurposed. Um, It's tough to know exactly in Taiwan because the nationalist, Chiang Kai shek's nationalist government, uh, immediately takes over Taiwan and it goes to the mainland. And then they come in and they try to expunge everything Japanese. um, And they decide to try to repurpose many of the Shinto shrines into Chinese martyr shrines, martyrs who died in the war against Japan. Uh, So it's tough because that's not really like, that's not necessarily Taiwanese. Uh, who are doing this. This is another outsider who has come in and says, we're going to change these to martyr shrines. Obviously, the Taiwanese aren't aren't creating martyr shrines because they didn't fight against Je- uh, Japan in World War II. Only mainland Chinese did. Uh, so this is what the outsiders will do to Shinto shrines in Taiwan. Again, what did the Taiwanese actually think? How did they respond? We don't know. But it does seem that more Taiwanese went, at least through the obligatory public performance motions of uh, say, you know showing that we're Shinto. Language, language. Um, the Kominka movement also would be a campaign to uh, replace once and for all Korean, uh, Chinese, and the Taiwanese language um, with Japanese. Okay. Prior to 1937, uh, usually there was some sort of a bilingual, oftentimes voluntary uh, uh, linguistic uh, system that uh, educational system that, that 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 was put in place. Korean and Chinese would be taught in school alongside Japanese, um, and oftentimes, perhaps not by official rules, but by default, uh, Korean and Chinese uh, would often be first languages, uh, especially if you were in a private school. Uh, sometimes Japan would be the first language, but again, there's going to be a lot of variation all over the place, depending on how rural it is, how close it is to major cities, the you know how wealthy you are. There's lots of factors that come involved here. But generally speaking, um, this you know uh, messy gray area. Uh, a lot of people are being exposed to Japanese. Some people are being forced to learn Japanese, but there's still persistence of Korean. Uh, some Chinese instruction on Taiwan, and just a lot of people who aren't really literate in Taiwan but are just speaking Taiwanese, um, and you know picking up a little bit of Japanese on the side if they happen to go to school. After 1937, Japanese will become a required first language in the schools. All right, classical Chinese curriculum, which was quite popular if you had any sort of wealth whatsoever, Uh, classical Chinese curriculum, which is usually Confucian curriculum almost by default, uh, was very popular in both Taiwan and Korea. That will disappear from the curriculum altogether. Uh, Chinese language newspapers will be prohibited in Taiwan. Even if you can read Chinese, you will not be able to act to to read Chinese newspapers anymore because that sort of plugs you in to what's going on on the mainland, and obviously that's going to be very negative to the Japanese. Uh, Once again, it seems that Japanese language problems were most successful in Taiwan. It was said that graduates of an elementary education in Japan during this time period emerged with basic conversational fluency. And that was seen as a big success. It's tough to impose your language on the subject population, um, especially when they're not necessarily closely related and there's very little connection, uh, organic connection between Taiwanese or Chinese and Japanese, Uh, Be a little bit more of a connection with Korea. Um, Japan would, uh, you know, invest some resources into this initiative as well. They would have language outreach programs that would try to reach rural students who could not attend an urban school. It's always going to be more effective in urban sites and urban schools um, in the rural areas as anyone actually learning Japanese, uh, they they would make a concerted effort to actually go out um, and uh, uh, find a way to introduce Japanese to everyone in Taiwan. By 1943, uh, Japanese documents are claiming that 80% of all Taiwanese could converse in in Japanese. It's probably an exaggeration, but it also probably contains a substantial kernel of truth. Um, it was also something. Remember, again, it's, even if you don't impose it on the subject population, if you are going to, if your rule lasts a long time, there's going to be a natural incentive for the locals to learn that language, whether they want to or not. You want to rise up in the government, you want to get a good job, you want to have business opportunities. You need to learn the language of the people who control those fields, um, and that, in this case, is going to be Japanese. In other empires, it'll be French or English or, or, or Russian. Uh, here, it's Japanese, um, and so it does seem like this uh, was something that uh, spread quite widely among the Taiwanese. In previous episodes, I've always given examples of my own in-laws. Um, you know, I, 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 I've, I've mentioned several times, uh, my wife's grandmother, now in her 90s, uh, grew up in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, and she learned Japanese. Her husband, her uh, my, my, my wife's gran- grandparents, they all learned Japanese, um, and it had been, you know, 60 years when I first met them, it had been 60 years since Japan surrendered and left Taiwan. Um, and it was apparent that they still remembered some of it. They're not fluent uh, but you know it, it was it, it was etched deeply in their brain, the Japanese that they had learned as children. Um, and they did not learn Mandarin Chinese. They spoke Taiwanese and Japanese and that was it. Okay. On Taiwan as well, you also had other incentives beyond just sort of the natural obvious incentives to learn Japanese. Um, Again, you know, the government would go out of its way and create special incentives to be certified as, quote, a national language family. Uh, It was said that if all family members spoke Japanese at home, and this could be verified, uh, your family would get a special plaque that you could hang on the front door that identified your family as a national language family. How do you identify this? Well, someone has to go into your home um, and hang out while your family's interacting with each other over dinner time. Uh, that's not awkward at all, is it? <laughs> and then you all have to prove that you can have casual conversation in Japanese. If you can do this, you can put a nice little sign on the front door that tells everyone else, We're special. We're special. How are we special? Well, because we all speak Japanese at home, we're demonstrating our good faith commitment to become Japanese. Um, we will now get preference. In uh, uh, going to better schools, our kids will have preference in going to the best schools, the best Japanese schools. Uh, The parents will have preference in getting better jobs, promotions at work. These things help out. All right. They'll give you a leg up. Uh, So, again, we're seeing the carrot. We're seeing the carrot Uh, in Taiwan. What about Korea? We're seeing the stick. All right. A much smaller proportion of the, ja- of the Korean population spoke Japanese by the 1940s. We don't have estimates uh, from the Japanese of what the actual number was. They were probably quite reticent uh, to make any sort of estimate when they knew it was going to be much lower than the Taiwanese. Uh, but remember, Korea has also been a colony for le- uh, uh, less time than Taiwan has been. It became a colony 15 years later than Taiwan. The population is four times as big as Taiwan. In 1939, the Korean population is around 24 million people. In 1939, the Taiwanese population is around 6 million. And Korea is six times as large. Okay? It's going to be much, much harder. Uh, among a group like this to impose the Japanese language to the extent where it actually takes root. You can try to impose it, and they do. Uh, once more, you know, it's, it's now the required first language in school, but the, lear- the the learning curve, what you're up against, is much more substantial than what you're up against in Taiwan. And as a result, when they're not seeing the results in Korea that they see in Taiwan, the Japanese authority implement a harsh surveillance system. Um, and people who actually advocate for learning Korean language, who openly resist the implement the uh, uh, new orders that everyone has to learn Japanese as their first language in school, um, you will go to jail. There will be surveillance on you, you'll be linked to nationalism. Anyone who says that the Korean language is something that we should be learning uh, at the expense of Japanese is by default assumed to be someone who is a political subversive um, and that's not okay anymore. And so you're going to see much harsher measures, uh, less willingness to subscribe to this new policy, and that in turn will be met by harsher uh, suppression measures. Another interesting aspect of this campaign is the campaign to replace Chinese and Korean surnames with Japanese names. This this is personal, okay? Um, you know, Shinto shrines, you can go through the motions. Language. That hurts. That hurts. Uh, but and you know, you can also, if you have ever been around, if you have any experience with bilingual families, um, it's not that hard actually. If you can get past some of the abstract ideology of what your language represents to you in the political realm and all that, it's for, still quite easy to speak your own language at home and learn another language for you know official use for you for use at work Uh, this is the norm actually in many countries that aren't you know england or or united states of america bilingualism multilingualism is the norm and you have one language at home in the private realm and you have other languages that you might use at work in a work environment and that's you know it's not hard to juggle those things and they don't really contradict one another uh surnames all right, you're hitting home. You're hitting close to home. All right, I mean, Justin Jacobs, I and mean, I get an order change your last name, okay, um, as a sign of political submission to an outside force. That has to hurt, okay? So, what are we seeing here? Taiwanese would be encouraged, again, encouraged, not forced. Taiwanese would be encouraged to adopt Japanese names with incentives, whereas Koreans would be ordered to change their names or else. Okay. Now, the higher up you were in Taiwan, if you were a Taiwanese uh, uh, who worked in the government, uh, Taiwanese government officials or those who, you know, and uh, prominent in the business community would feel a lot of pressure, of course, to change their names. Um, But regardless, when Taiwanese changed their names, uh, they often would do so in a way that didn't hurt so much. Because this does hurt, even if you like Japan, even if you like Japanese culture. All right. Even if you're saying, you know, I'm glad that we're a part of the Japanese empire. It's much better than being a part of China, which would be a reasonable conclusion to make in the 1930s, I have to say, considering what's going on in China. All right. Um, nevertheless, this would be something that would be hard to swallow. Okay. Even if you're predisposed Uh, uh, to be friendly towards the Japanese. Um, So, many Taiwanese would still, in fact, uh, sort of uh, uh, undertake a process of adopting a new name that had a little bit of uh, subtle resistance embedded within it. They would often choose a Japanese surname that included uh, a character or some sort of stroke element of a character that was present in their old name. Uh, You may have been illiterate, but you were able to write your Chinese surname usually and you knew what that surname was. Um, Japanese surnames oftentimes are uh, two characters, two, two, two Chinese characters. Sometimes one character. Most Chinese surnames are one character, although rarely you get two characters. Um, so you can see there's some room for some overlap. Japanese surnames are obviously different, uh, different types of characters, different combinations of characters, and they're certainly going to be pronounced totally different than the Japanese than the uh, Chinese characters will be pronounced. Uh, nevertheless, you can see where there is some possibility in which you could probably choose a Japanese surname. Uh, in which the kanji, the Chinese characters that uh, comprise that surname, either contain one character that is actually uh, very similar uh, to your old surname, or contains some stroke elements, you know, the actual strokes that uh, uh, build up the character, um, that somehow harken back to your home village Alright, uh, maybe your your grandmother's surname or, you know, whatever, uh, some way that it's not a totally foreign surname. You find a Japanese surname in which there's something familiar about those characters or the radical that's involved or what it means that can, you know, help you feel like you're not a total sellout. Uh, I preserve some aspect of my former identity. Okay. There were certain restrictions. There were certain Japanese uh, surnames that you could not take. You could not take any surname that had a character from any of the names of, Je- of any of the Japanese empires, and you could not uh, adopt a Japanese character that, had, uh, that indicated some sort of a geographical origin in China. They, you know, they're still trying to squash any sort of lingering uh, uh, Chinese identity. In Taiwan as well, uh, you know, no character that has, uh, you know, no surname that includes a character that is closely identified with Fujian Province. You know, the characters for Fujian or you know something like that. All right. Uh, in Korea, there actually was a larger ideological justification uh, that went along with this. It wasn't just this is one aspect of becoming Japanese and proving your loyalty and whatnot. They actually pulled upon you know pseudo science, uh, the you know ev- the e- evolution of uh, uh, languages and uh, social structures to say that Korea hadn't developed a modern family system yet. They said what Korean names are, uh, there's only 250 surnames in Korea. And they said this is very backward. This small number of surnames is very backward. Uh, And it shows that these are clan names. These are clan names. Uh, You know, just like China, very few surnames in China. Uh, You you guys have clans. Um, You don't have a modern family system. Um, And therefore, we're going to help uh, move you along, push you along in the evolutionary process of what you're supposed to become. Of what you're supposed to become. What are you supposed to become? Whatever the most advanced standard is. Who decides what the most advanced standard is? Whoever has all the money and guns. Well, that's the Japanese. Uh, So, clearly, the Japanese set the standard. Whatever we have is what's advanced. Um, And uh, so, they look at the the, uh, uh, Korean surnames and say, these are clan names, uh, relatively barbaric. We're going to help usher you in to the modern world. If this sounds insane, it's because it is insane. This is highly subjective pseudoscience in which you're trying to, you know, twist things around just to suit whatever the present state of affairs is, the, the present imbalance of power that you are currently benefiting by, and you find some way to justify it. Regardless, the end result is that, uh, uh, you know, the Koreans were told to adopt a Japanese surname is a progressive modern act. This actually is a direct reversal of a previous decree. Uh, When the Japanese first had Korea, they actually had a law in place that said Koreans could not adopt Japanese surnames. Uh, This was a privilege that we haven't given you yet. Um, And now, obviously, they're trying to repudiate that. Uh, So, in the year 1940, Koreans are given a fairly scary ultimatum. Okay? They said, name change, surname change to a Japanese surname is obligatory within six months. Or, You will be denied access to public services. Your kids will not be able to go to school. Okay? Um, You're not going to be able to go to the government office and uh, register for whatever you need or, you know, ask for this or that. You you, you will not exist. Okay? That's very serious. This is what I mean. This is the difference between carrot and the stick. This is the stick. You have to comply. About 75% of all households in Korea, seem to uh, see the writing on the wall and actively comply. Uh, many, again, as in Taiwan, they would choose a Japanese surname that already included characters or a stroke order or a radical that indicated some sort of family origins. Um, again, you know, trying to, to give you the sense that we're not totally selling out, even when we have no other choice. Um, but this would be bitterly resented bitterly resented in Korea, uh, you know, being forced. It's not just an encouragement. Oh, wouldn't it be great if you chose, if you changed your surname and showed how how much you love the Japanese and you want to become Japanese So, and we'll give you some rewards and promotions and better schools for your kids. This is, you know, you don't become Japanese. You don't change your surname. You don't exist, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you, you pretty much don't exist. The last major element, the military. This is a very interesting category. Okay. Um, in the area of the military, what we're going to see is, um, you know, the it, it, uh, uh, gradual attempts. The, uh, to integrate Koreans and Taiwanese into the Japanese military in different forms. All right, Recall the importance in one of the earliest episodes we had on the Japanese empire. Um, one of the ways to think about uh, uh, how you visualize the degree of integration of your various components of the empire, who you think is loyal or less loyal, what sort of, uh, sort of measures that you're going to impose there, is who are you willing to give a gun Who are you willing to put a gun in their hands and uh, feel, you know, reasonably confident that they won't turn around and immediately shoot you once you put that gun in their hands? Okay. Um, And that's sort of what we're talking about here. At what point do the Japanese feel comfortable in their earliest colonies, the colonies they've had the longest? uh, How comfortable are they putting guns in these people's hands? And what are they going to let them do with those guns after they've given it to them? Um, So, integration of Koreans into the Japanese military. Well, we have an interesting backstory here we have to talk about first. In 1907, all native Korean military forces were disbanded. And in the early days of the Japanese Empire, a military career was absolutely impossible for the vast majority of Koreans. Okay? Unless maybe you were, a, you know, a, an old Korean noble, a prince or something, and you basically were living in Tokyo, um, and you're you know, already seen to be essentially Japanese, and you're going to Japanese military schools. For vast majority of Koreans, forget about it. You're not going to be ever put, they're not going to put a gun in your hands and put you in a uniform. Okay? In 1934... Right, we're into the 1930s now. Not really quite the wartime era yet, but still. Uh, military training would become available in higher schools. Okay, uh, The ability to actually get some lessons. It doesn't mean you're actually going to be put on the front lines, uh, but you can become more familiar with the Japanese military with, on the understanding that there might be jobs available for you one day in a non-combat capacity. And indeed, a few years later, 1938, voluntary participation... Uh, would be extended to Koreans in non-combat roles. Uh, That usually translates to administrative support or hard labor of some sort. And then in 1941, uh, this is Pearl Harbor, of course, uh, the invasion of Southeast Asia, uh, Japanese men in the home islands will become subject to full-scale conscription. So there's sort of your barometer. When do the Japanese themselves become subject to obligatory conscription not you, you know you have, you have a choice like it previously was uh, you have to join no matter what all right 1941 1943 uh, to 44 is when you start getting your general conscription of Koreans uh, so in this regard it's not terribly late that you have forced conscription of Koreans. Uh, But of course, if you're looking at sort of the voluntary entrance to the military, then obviously there's no comparison whatsoever because Japanese could join the military in a voluntary capacity from day one in when Korea was integrated in the Japanese empire. And obviously the Koreans couldn't until very late in the war, actually. What do you get by 1945? Uh, The end result is you end up having about 200,000 Koreans uh, who get conscripted into the Japanese army and about 20,000 in the Navy. Note the less strategically vulnerable army is is, is stationed in China. right you're less worried about the china theater uh and from from beginning to end the japanese will believe that the china theater is the is the less vulnerable theater of the war that's where you're fighting uh to them the most inferior enemy you're not fighting the british and the americans you're fighting the chinese who you generally look down upon um there and so oftentimes if you have soldiers like the koreans who you feel like i need the manpower now But I'm still not 100% sure that they're really trustworthy. Uh, The China theater is where you're going to put them. Only 20,000 Koreans are integrated into the Japanese Navy. The Japanese Navy, remember, it's on the ocean. They're going to be chiefly fighting the Americans and the British. So you're only going to take the select Koreans uh, uh, to be fighting in the Pacific theater. Um, A lot of the Koreans still, we know from sort of anecdotal evidence, although we don't necessarily have statistics on this, anecdotal evidence from American and British POWs uh, would uh, claim later on that uh, they were surprised how often Koreans seemed to be used as prison guards, uh, guards of POW camps. Um, and they often would say that for some reason, the Koreans seem to be even more harsh and cruel than some of the uh, Japanese prison guards. I don't really know what to make of that. Uh, but nevertheless, one thing we can make out of this one sort of historical kernel we can squeeze out of all of this, um, is that it does seem that uh, oftentimes the Koreans, even when they were conscripted into the army or the navy, they were still sort of put in non-combat roles, not on the front lines, which still indicates, you know, we have this very late date um, of of, uh, conscription and then a seeming preponderance of Koreans who are, uh, you know, if you're going to have a gun, make sure you have the gun generally pointed at white people (laughs) and not at other Japanese Okay. Again, we need more research on this stuff. All right. This ep- 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 episodes like this, I'm giving you a general introduction. So if you're interested in this, maybe you will one day go and get a PhD in Japanese history, um, and you can research one of these topics better and write a book. I'll read your book, and then I'll be able to give a a more comprehensive, in depth lecture one day. Um, Koreans also uh, uh, could get a military training um, in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, and many of them did go abroad. Uh, you do see a a, a a a larger number of Koreans um, who are going to the Japanese home islands uh, to join military academies, uh, oftentimes in the late 1930s. Um, and uh, also, it was common for Koreans to go to Manchukuo if you couldn't go to Tokyo, which would be tough because you're competing with you know native Japanese and whatnot. Uh, One other place that Koreans could go uh, to sort of pursue opportunities if they really wanted to pursue them and they didn't see it as this obligatory conscription they didn't want to be a part of, uh, Manchukuo. And we also have anecdotal evidence that there were quite a few Koreans who went to Manchukuo and uh, uh, could enter military academies and see that as a way to become sort of a high-ranking officer um, in a wartime theater later. Um, What about the Taiwanese and the Japanese military. Well, we know in 1937, Taiwanese were first recruited on an experimental basis to serve as interpreters, Mandarin, Fujianese, and Cantonese interpreters in the uh, 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 Chinese war theater. 1937 is the invasion of Shanghai. It's the uh, uh, invasion of much of southern China. Um, and eventually, they're going to take over Hong Kong as well. Japan will have many coastal cities um, and inland railroad routes in the southern parts of China where northern Mandarin Chinese isn't spoken uh, much at all. Uh, but then, other times, you're going to have captured uh, uh, Chinese soldiers who did come from the north and they're going to speak Mandarin. Um, and so, various people in Taiwan who had these language uh, abilities would be recruited as uh, interpreters. Now, it's an interpreter. You're still not giving the guy a gun, but you are uh, integrating them. In Into a military environment. Eventually what you're going to get in Taiwan is about 207,000 Taiwanese will serve in the Japanese military and of those 30,000 Taiwanese will die uh, in actual combat. Now think about this, just over 200,000 Taiwanese in the military. Uh, We had just over 200,000 Koreans in the Japanese military. So the numbers are basically the same. All right. However, Taiwan has one fourth the population of Korea. Korea is 24 million. Taiwan is uh, six million in the year 1939. So if you think, oh, the same number of Taiwanese and Koreans served, I guess they're being treated kind of the same here. No, This there are four. There is four times the level of trust among the Japanese towards the Taiwanese as there are uh, among the Koreans, and the very high level of casualty rates—30,000 Taiwanese dying. In battle means that they were put on the front lines. All right. Uh, This means Taiwanese in general were far more trusted with a gun in their hands than the Koreans were. Okay. Um, You had many times in which Taiwanese were put on a battlefield and told to shoot mainland Chinese. And they did. And the mainland Chinese shot them. (laughs) And both sides died. Uh, This will not go over well after 1945 when the mainland Chinese government takes back Taiwan. All right, that'll be very traumatic. You go back, listen to my History of Taiwan episode 20 episodes ago or whatever it was. Uh, It will be very traumatic, Uh, the transition to mainland Chinese rule after 1945. Not only do you have the general odious taint of having been ruled by Japan for 50 years and how they marginalized all Chinese identity for the Taiwanese, uh, you also have the immediate legacy the immediate legacy of, you actually fought against us um, side by side with the Japanese. Okay. Uh, we know, as we'll talk about when we have we have our episode on the comfort women, we know that uh, Taiwanese soldiers serving in the Japanese military patronize com- uh, comfort women stations. We have uh, first hand accounts in which a uh, former comfort woman, in her uh, memoirs will say, yeah, uh, you know, most of them were Japanese, but every once in a while you'd be able to detect an accent or something or they would speak a different language and you could tell they're from elsewhere. And I remember reading one of these that I assigned to my students, the, the, the woman says, yeah, I think this one guy was from Taiwan. Um, you know, so they did all the things that uh, the Japanese in the military did as well. Um, and Taiwan also will experience a little bit more of actual fighting during the war. I often say, you know, it's um, sort of insulated in this insulated bubble from mainland China, um, and uh, Taiwanese don't really suffer as much, and generally speaking, that's true. Uh, Taiwan suffers nowhere near as much as people living on the Chinese mainland will suffer during World War II. Uh, but there are some bombing raids. Uh, there will be some allied bombing raids of oil of oil refineries and anything that's regarded as an industrial military uh, supporting factory on Taiwan, and of course the economy will generally regress during the war as well, but still nothing like mainland uh China, um, and when the Chiang kai Nationalist Party comes back to Taiwan after the war, there will still be plenty of factories for them to strip bare and take back to the mainland to help them defeat the uh, civil war, uh, the communists in the civil war. Now, at the same time, at the same time, uh, there were preparations. Sort of the final note I want to I want to say about the Kominka movement. Uh, there were preparations on the part of the Japanese uh, for full political integration of Taiwan and Korea into Japan's parliament. Okay, with minor but very real representative voting opportunities and, uh, you know, core citizenship. Again, if Japan didn't lose the war, something substantive and long-lasting might have evolved out of, uh, 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 you know, phenomena like this. But like with all other developments during the war, it immediately falls apart in 1945 and is quickly delegitimized by the new outside rulers who come in and take over Korea and Taiwan. And then these sort of tantalizing facts of history are totally forgotten about. But in theory, in theory, during the war, if the new measures of political integration and this Kominka movement were actually upheld and uh, endured after 1945, Someone born in Taiwan or Korea could have eventually become the premier of Japan eventually. They had representatives who were sent to Japan's parliament in Tokyo with voting rights on certain measures. Did they actually get to exercise any real autonomy or influence during the war? Almost certainly not. Uh, but lots of things uh, uh, you know, are like this. They start off as ceremonial concessions that look good on paper but don't have a lot of substance behind it. But as time goes on, substance accrues <laughs> if your country doesn't lose a major war like World War II which Japan does. So these sorts of things, the Komenka movement, these sort of things uh, end up becoming these dusty footnotes of history. Um, But there was real intent and real resources invested into these movements at the time period. um, And they are indicative of Japan's desire um, to sort of move the empire into the next stage of integration with Taiwan and Korea being slated for full total assimilation in the military in culture, in language, in religion, in politics, uh, you will become the next Hokkaido, the next Okinawa. All right, and Japan will have not four islands, not six islands. They'll be we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about the seven Japanese home islands and the uh, Japanese home peninsula, things like that. That would have happened. It sounds ridiculous to say that now. Uh, but that is what would have happened if it wasn't all ended in 1945. Okay, now that we've seen Korea and Taiwan, Japan's earliest colonies, formally slated for full assimilation, uh, I think it's time that we go and explore some of the other new colonies that Japan has had. We, we talked about the military conquest of uh, uh, Southeast Asia. But there's a lot more to say, and it's really interesting. What were the political strategies of leaders in various Southeast Asian countries to deal with the Japanese after they were invaded or after they faced the real prospect of a Japanese invasion? You know, what about Thailand, Burma, Indonesia, the Philippines? got a lot to say on these places and it's really interesting what happened in a very short period of time in these Southeast Asian countries. So please join me for Japanese rule in Southeast Asia in episode 53 of Beyond (laughs) Waxia.